This could be a fairly historic Canada Day, as it, of course, will be the first time we celebrate the nation's birthday with legalized marijuana. And as you just heard Danny at the top of the hour in the news there, he was talking about edibles. They will be uh, legal uh, sometime in October. And the Canadian medical community issuing a warning today about the dangers of edibles in children. Now, between September and December of last year, 16 cases of harm were reported among those under 18 years of age, according to new findings by the Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program. Now, they say a significant number of young children required medical care after ingesting cannabis in the months surrounding legalization last October. Dr. Christopher Nogler is with the Cummings School of Medicine out at the University of Calgary, and he joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon, and thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, first off, with the edibles set to be illegal sometime later this year, sometime in October, just uh, how concerning as a medical professional uh, are these numbers? So I think one case is too many, but I think before we get too, too worried about the numbers as reported, we have to dig a little deeper and and say, is this more than we would expect because if the uh, if the idea is that this is attributable to uh, legalization of cannabis and I think that's that's uh, pretty concerning but I think if we if we dig a little deeper um, the numbers don't quite add up and and uh, and I'll tell you why if you look at the protocol for the study uh, that you're reporting on they actually estimated that during that same period of time, um, in based on 2012-2013 data, they would expect to see 31 cases. And so I think it's, it's dangerous or, or, or worrisome to just take that 16 number in isolation and, and, and attribute it to uh, the change in policy without saying how how might this have uh, how what might this number have been had the policy not been changed okay but should we take this as a bit of a warning because as we know edibles are not yet legal in this country and uh, once they become uh, legalized uh, one would think that edibles would be more readily available and in more households yeah I completely agree and i think it's it's important even if if the numbers um, are not more than we would have suggested i think it's it's an important warning that that uh, physicians and and uh, individuals, particularly who use cannabis, need to be aware that um, there's danger of, of accidental exposure uh, ingestion by uh, by children in their care, and uh, they obviously have a responsibility to safeguard um, their their edibles from children. And so, I think it's it's a great thing to increase the um, the uh, uh, awareness within the medical community and within uh, the population uh, at large. And I think we're going to have to see um, the results of the surveillance program uh, following the introduction of legalized edibles to see what's the scope of the problem. Yeah, is that something you would like to see the medical community, uh, the government uh, take responsibility for, is increasing that awareness as uh, edibles become uh, legalized? Uh, because when we talk about exposure with uh, kids, uh, one might think uh, edibles usually take the form of things like cookies and uh, gummies, gummy bears, and these are things that are obviously very attractive to children. Yeah, and I think uh, if the marketing is is uh, targeted towards those very visually attractive things that could be mistaken for candies, uh, then that's something that, that needs to be addressed from a policy point of view. I think it's also important to realize that um, that uh, individual, the public may not realize that, that the danger is there. Uh, I think there's a lot of awareness, for instance, about um, children, adolescents smoking 
cannabis products, but but probably not the same level of awareness uh, for the um, for the edibles. All right, uh, joined by Dr. Christopher Nogler. He is a, a professor at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of uh, Calgary. Uh, also wanted to uh, get your uh, take this afternoon, if we could, on this ATM-style self-serve pharmacy that's appeared here in Toronto. This is up at the uh, corner of Church and Blur. It's described as a, a new high-tech ATM but it's an actual, actually, it's an automated self-service pharmacy in which uh, you can go in with your prescription. It can be scanned. Uh, there, there's no uh, waiting in line like at a traditional pharmacy for it to be filled. It just uh, dispenses uh, pills once it uh, reads your prescription. Uh, what, what is your take? What do you think about this, doctor? This is a really interesting, uh, interesting story. There's a couple of things that, that come to mind uh, for this. Uh, the first one is... Um, is uh, issues around security. So um, uh, the the idea of scanning a prescription and and uh, sending it into a pharmacy is not new. I understand that's uh, that's practiced uh, in, in various locations. But having it completely automated and being able to pick up your prescription within sixty seconds, as advertised for this kiosk, uh, is uh, it raises a couple of, of important questions. So one is, uh, what are the safeguards around it? So um, what would prevent a patient from um, taking a photo of the prescription, scanning it, having it filled at a kiosk, and then taking the same prescription to a traditional pharmacy to have it filled? So that's that's a, a key, I think, security issue, and uh, I don't know the answer to that. I would hope that the designers of this kiosk have, have thought of that. Um, another is you have to look at what do you get for your prescribing fee. So I understand the prescribing fee for this uh, kiosk is... Uh, in the range of, of $8, I believe. So if you get a prescription filled at a traditional pharmacy, what do you get for that $8? Well, you get um, a, a check by the pharmacist that there's no interactions with other medications. You get uh, patient counseling. You get uh, some questions about your general health and and, and whether there are issues you uh, may want to watch out for, side effects you may want to watch out for with the prescription. Now, we all get, when you have a prescription filled, you get the page after page of, of interactions and warnings, but I, I, would, I would offer that most patients don't really read that, and it's that interaction with the pharmacy, uh, that's, that's the pharmacist that's more important. And so there's a couple of, of worries. I have the loss of that value add that the pharmacist gives and also the security question. Yeah, I want to drill down on both of those a little further because uh, that's what occurred to me as well when I saw this story. And first and foremost, pharmacists, I mean, they're more than just uh, pill counters, uh, you know, counting uh, 30 pills into a bottle or, or, or whatnot. Uh, but uh, is that not the role of uh, the physician, the prescribing a doctor to, to make sure? I mean, they would be the ones that would have uh, what drugs uh, you're currently on, what prescriptions you're currently on. And if they're prescribing something else, is it not up to the prescribing doctor to make sure that uh, everything is uh, okay? So the prescribing doctor definitely has a responsibility to watch out for those issues, but the pharmacist is is another level of security for the for the patient. So consider the situation where the patient has a prescription, say, from a specialist and from a family physician or a couple of different specialists. The the individual physicians may not actually be aware that there are other um, prescriptions being filled by that patient, and so the common point of contact is the pharmacist, where they can look at the overall medications and look for. Uh, for interactions and that sort of thing. And so it is a, an, another safety um, valve for the patient uh, that would be lost if, uh, if that personal interaction isn't there. As well, the physicians, uh, especially busy family doctors, often just don't have the time to review 
every um, possible uh, interaction, every possible side effect. And even though they have a, a responsibility to do so, the pharmacist um, often really provides that service of, of going over um, what time of day do you take it and, and what other medications. And so there's, there's a considerable, I think, risk of losing that, uh, that service, that safety service, um, if the pharmacist is not included in the equation. And you mentioned the security issue as well, making sure that uh, prescriptions are going to those that they're prescribed to, uh, not being abused and uh, taking a a prescription and getting it uh, filled several different times. In a day and an age when we're so uh, concerned about the opioid crisis and uh, those drugs uh, being abused, uh, would you like to see uh, some sort of limit, obviously, on what sort of prescriptions uh, can be dealt out through these uh, ATM self-service style pharmacies? Absolutely. And and I think um, prescribing of, of so-called controlled substances, opioids would be the, the main one, uh, clearly wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, reasonable to have it in a self-serve fashion. But there are other other medications that um, may be um, used uh, in abuse situations or, or may be misused or may be filled uh, by someone who has uh, a drug plan and given to another individual who doesn't have a drug plan, well-meaning, but without the, the medical oversight and the oversight of the pharmacist. And so I think it it introduces a lot of potential uh, risks for um, patients, uh, if not properly supervised. And so while the, the um, kind of modern trends are for um, patient empowerment and uh, patients to take control of their health care, and I think most physicians are supportive of that, I think we need to be sure we have those um, safety measures in place. Uh, for patients, um, so giving them complete control of their healthcare in terms of complete control of access to to medications, um, the patients themselves would have to become doctors or pharmacists essentially to to understand all the nuances in the, in their care and treatment. And so I, I think there's there's um, a definite limit to uh, to the safety issue there. All right, and finally from the Health File this afternoon, the Toronto Star with an exclusive out today in which they are uh, naming names, uh, Ontario's top billing doctors, and the top billing doctor uh, in this province is an eye specialist in uh, Mississauga who is uh, charged OHIP an average of $6 million, $6 million a, a year and $42 million since uh, 2011. And uh, Dr. Nagler, I'm just uh, wondering uh, what your opinion, what your take is on this transparency that has uh, come to uh, doctors and uh, their billing. There's a lot of discussion about this uh, across Canada. A number of provinces already include physicians on their so-called uh, sunshine list. So BC, Manitoba, Alberta um, already make the names uh, and uh, billing amounts of physicians available online. So it's not that Alberta is doing anything that's that different than is already practiced in other parts of Canada. Uh, I guess there's a, a couple of opinions you'd hear from physicians on this. One is that um, transparency is good and there is a lot of variation among um, incomes with different specialty groups and, and the public probably doesn't uh, necessarily realize this, but um, uh, ophthalmologists, radiologists, some other specialists tend to be be very high billing um, specialists. And so I think many physicians feel that transparency is, is probably a good thing here. The, the flip side is 
these numbers are are often taken out of context as meaning that a physician is is making or taking home that much money. But you have to remember that physicians are actually operating a small business, and that billing number that's reported is their total fee for service billing or salary. But from that, there's generally they're paying their their receptionist, their nurse if they have one, they're paying rent, they're paying their malpractice insurance, and so that overhead. Com- component um, for many uh, practicing physicians can easily be 50% or more of that billing. And so I think there has to be a recognition that, that this is um, essentially the, the, the gross um, billing amounts of that company that that physician is running and not their take-home in-pocket income. Yeah, is there a accepted a percentage if a physician in this case uh, the top billing physician in this province is six million a year? Uh, what would take home be? To, would it be ten percent of that? Uh, is there kind of a formula? It it varies by by specialist, and um, I can tell you for um, it, it's probably better defined for for um, family physicians or primary care doctors when it, they would tend to take home maybe fifty percent. Again, this is before taxes, but overheads depending on what your rent costs and what your what your uh, um, what employees you have. So it's tough to give an exact number, um, but that would be um, for certainly for lower billing individuals that would be a reasonable number to think about as, as half of their gross billings are going to go to, to overhead expenses. All right, just finally, we'll get you out on this question. Uh, how much is too much when it comes to billing? Because uh, I think some would feel as if, uh, you know, this is almost turnstile medicine that uh, maybe uh, the doctor isn't giving me uh, their ultimate attention because they're worried about just getting uh, to the next billable, the next patient. Yeah, a lot of a lot of discussion within the medical community on that as well because the um, high volume fee for service physicians. There's been uh, moves to limit their billing, and, and including, um, for instance, with family physicians uh, in 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 uh, Ontario. But there, we don't have that much data on what's actually the quality of of high uh, billing physicians versus low billing physicians. And to some extent, it may be that that some of these higher billing physicians are just more experienced, more efficient, able to provide. Um, safe care to a larger number of patients, and 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 to some extent, they may actually um, serve um, a, a very useful purpose in the medical system. Where we, instead of hiring another physician or training another physician, they can increase uh, the capacity in their own practice. But clearly, there's a limit to that, and and the, the turnstile um, medicine, as as uh, as you say, is clearly not something that we want to uh, we want to uh, support. Within within Canada, and that's why there's a move in many in many areas to look at alternative ways of paying physicians. So instead of paying fee for service, maybe they have a, a capitation or a salary model that that doesn't incent high volume quick visits, but but maybe incents uh, um, more uh, comprehensive care. All right, doctor, I'm going to have to leave it there. Really appreciate the time and the discussion. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. There goes Dr. Christopher Nogler. He is with the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary.